British Spy Stories, Season 1 Spy or Traitor? Episode 25 The light of the September sun is still strong at 5pm. Sir Bernard sits on one of the sofas in his office, reading the daily reports from the European MI6 field stations. A quiet knock on door is followed by Lawrence, bustling in with two brown folders. Barnet and Red Shark report, sir, he says across the office. Sir Bernard grunts acknowledgement, which could be construed as rude, but the two of them know each other's foibles, and the noise is exactly what Lawrence had expected. The assistant continues to tidy the desk in silence, butler-like in his lack of presence. Sir Bernard doesn't notice the man leave, but five minutes later he does notice another knock on the door, and Lawrence's reappearance. Sir Stephen, sir? Thank you, Lawrence. Lawton enters and walks over the red carpet to his superior. His normally cheerful eyes have a dullness, the skin on his cheeks dropping down hard to his jawline. His shoulders, too, are less upright than they have been. Have a seat, Stephen. I wanted to talk to you. Lawton sits on the sofa opposite. Sir Bernard is reading papers in front of him as he speaks. What's the latest on our hillbank op? Lawton takes a second to form the words he needs. Long enough for Sir Bernard to look up at the other man's face. Are you all right, Stephen? Yes, sir. Thank you, says Lawton. You're looking peaky. I was unwell this morning and was at home. What was the matter with you? Lawton's years of fabricating information to cover his traitorous activities allow him to invent on the spot, with ease. Dizziness, headache, and very tired. Maybe something I ate, he says. Sir Bernard is silent, but watching like a hawk. I went for a walk at lunchtime, on the heath, and found a dead man. Sir Bernard knows about the corpse, but feigns ignorance to see how Lawton describes the situation. Do we know him? No, lies Lawton. Where was this? On the heath, as I said. Near your home? Yes, not far. And you don't know him? Never seen him, says Lawton, feeling as though he is in the headmaster's study at school. Seen the police? Yes, of course. I called them immediately. Gave them a statement, but all I did was discover him. I didn't see anyone else near. Sir Bernard watches a man he knows, keeping something unsaid, but doesn't mention it. Then, after a few seconds, he returns to the original subject. Hillbank, then? he asks. The contact is today. We'll have documents. Not today, tomorrow, I think, mumbles Lawton. We need to make sure that the op is a success, Stephen. There's a great deal riding on it. I'm across it, sir. After a few more minutes of uncomfortable grilling, Lawton drags his tired body up from the seat and retreats to the relative safety of the corridor outside. He walks back to his office, biting the side of his fingernail on his right hand, as his brain won't jump off the merry-go-round of worry that is spinning faster and faster 
inside his head. He rubs his temples, trying to relieve some of the dull ache that sits there. In his distraction, he turns the handle of Martine's office and walks in, closes the door and collapses back on it, with his eyes closed. Sir Stephen! She stands and rushes to his side. Lawton, surprised that she's there as he thought he was in his own office, pulls back from her with a look of shock and anger. Martine lets out a tiny inhaling noise as she watches his recoil. Sorry, Martine. You should have stayed at home. You're not well, she says. He closes his eyes again. Come and sit down. She guides him to the chairs used for waiting guests that are lined up along one wall of her office. They both sit down together, and, after a second of indecision, she lays her warm hands on his, which are clasped together and white around the knuckles. Go home. The words glide out smoothly. He takes a deep breath. I'm not sure I can do it any more. He says, so quietly, that she has to lean in to hear the Annunciation. You're not well, she repeats. I've been stupid. Her face frowns, trying to work out his meaning. I probably knew it couldn't go on forever. Do you want to retire? Is that it? I want to end it. Which she takes as an agreement to what she said. I'll call a taxi, she says, getting up and walking around to the other side of her desk. Don't think badly of me, Martine, no matter what you hear. She doesn't hear him, as she is talking to the man on reception about a taxi. What did you say? I didn't think they'd kill him, says Lawton, now lost in his depression. Who? And returns to her comforting position by his side. She dips her head to see his downturned face more clearly. Her blonde bob drops across her shoulder. But Lawton doesn't answer. Martine helps him stand five minutes later. When the call comes from downstairs to say a car is waiting. She leads him to the lifts. Stands beside him on the descent. And watches like a mother as the tail lights of the taxi turn out into the traffic on the Albert Embankment. Stuart rubs his hands in front of the electric fire in the sitting room of the flat. The side windows that look out over the concrete buildings are misted over, proving outside is colder than inside. Geraldine walks in from the kitchen and hands him a glass of wine. Hers is red and his is white. He smiles at her and she replies in kind. Her body leans into his, and his arm unconsciously curves around her waist. She moves her head to his shoulder, and they both stare in silence at the heating bars in front of them. The doorbell creates a bite of sound that snaps through the air and crashes their intimacy. They pull away from the embrace and look into each other's eyes. She turns and walks to the door. As it opens, the wind tickles a dreamcatcher in the hallway, which stopped making any sound some time ago due to its age. Standing on the doorstep is a young, blonde man. 
no more than twenty years old. His features are sharp and striking, so that you would remember him from a passing glance on a busy train. His hair is short, his eyes a cold, penetrating grey. I'm looking for Palmer. I'm Palmer, says Stuart from the shadows behind Geraldine. Come in, Alexander. They walk single file into the lounge. Wine, says Geraldine. But the boy shakes his head. I wanted to see you first, says Alexander. He waits to choose his words. I wanted to be sure about the deal. You'll get any charges dropped, says Geraldine. As long as you cooperate. The information is my cooperating, says the German. Yes, but afterwards too, once the gang has been arrested, she says. Stuart is constantly surprised by her bravado these days. What information do you have? Names, says Alexander. Gang members? The boy nods. And further up the tree. Details of how they operate. That's good, says Geraldine, smiling at him. When can you get all this to us? I can bring it tomorrow, this time tomorrow, says the boy. Why are you doing this? says Stuart, and Geraldine gives him a stark look. They killed my brother. Who? The gang. How do you know? I just know. They shot him in bed with his girlfriend there. Did she see it? I don't know. I haven't spoken to her since. What was her name? asks Geraldine. Why? says the boy. Just interested. Charlotte, he says. And she witnessed the killing, says Geraldine. I think so. The flow of the discussion dies away, as Alexander's nerves climb like larks at dawn. No matter, she says quietly. I need to go, he says. They see him out, and he disappears into the dying daylight. Catherine sleeps on the covers of Gabby's bed in the hotel for four hours, with her leg on cushions, after they return to the Palais de la Méditerranée. By the time she wakes, it is early evening, and she readily accepts Gabby's suggestion to go and eat in the restaurant downstairs. She showers and borrows a dress from the spy, which fits but is shorter on her taller frame. They take a table in the sun. They are both wearing black, but their hair colour is in contrast to the other. Catherine is restless, Gabby notices, and puts it down to the injury she sustained at the observatory. They order Prosecco, and tiny points of light dance in the glasses and reflect up to their faces. Do you like your job? says Catherine. Sure, I'm used to it now. You didn't like it at first? Just experience, I guess, says Gabby. I think I'm better at it now than straight out of training. What about you? What about your job? I like the isolation of being a sniper in C9. Not a party person, says Gabby. I just like doing my own thing, you know. It must be difficult trying to keep friendships going for you, says Gabby.
C9 gets allocated all over the place, doesn't it? I'm based in Zurich. The jobs are usually around there. But this one's a bit left field. Did Rob ask for you, then? Catherine nods. You two together? No, I've got a boyfriend, says Catherine. Zurich's nice. He's not in Zurich. He's in London. Her fingers drop to her skirt, and she feels the outline of the knife strapped to her thigh. How often does London move you around, then? says Gabrielle. Every couple of years? They like to change the allocated region. Wish they would move me. I've been in Berlin too long. Ever get back to London? Not often enough. You do get back sometimes, though. About three or four times a year, says Gabby. Have you been recently? Gabby stops for a moment. A couple of weeks ago, actually. Do anything nice? says Catherine. It was just after all this mole shit started. I went off grid and just looked up a few old friends. The waitress arrives with their starters and pours them more Prosecco. It must be good to catch up like that, says Catherine. Gabby narrows her eyes but says nothing. They eat for a moment without conversation. You got a bloke? Nope. A few friends with benefits, though. What? says Gabby. She stops her fork halfway between her plate and her mouth. You know, no strings, a bit of a laugh. Catherine's voice gains an edge of anger, slight, but identifiable. Gabby takes a deep breath. No, not, not really she mutters. You're pretty there, continues Catherine. Men must be falling over themselves. What are you getting at? says Gabby. You know Richard Langley? Gabby frowns. Sure, but how do you... He's my boyfriend, Gabrielle. Ah, shit. She is used to situations changing quickly as part of her everyday job but even Gabby is taken aback by the speed that Catherine manages to remove the blade from the strapping on her thigh and slit a fine cut in Gabby's skin just above her left knee. Gabrielle pushes the whole table, complete with food, glasses, cutlery and candle across the gap between them and into Catherine's chest. The sniper is caught off guard and starts to fall back on her chair. She pushes a leg out to the approaching ground to stop the drop. Gabby is on her feet now and lunges for the knife. Catherine pulls it away above their heads. The two couples at the adjacent tables all get up at the same time and move away from the fighting women. The blade comes down in a swerving arc, pivoting around Catherine's shoulder. It hits Gabby's arm side on, Gabrielle grabs for it and gets a firm grip on the handle. She is the stronger of the two, and the knife crashes out of their grasp and clatters away on the floor tiles. 
Gabrielle twists Catherine's arm around, and the women lose balance. They both crash to the floor, Gabby on top, straddling her opponent. Stop! says Gabby with wide open eyes, dipping her head close to Catherine's and holding both of her hands to the floor. This is stupid! Catherine strains under the hold for a second, and then realises that the imbalance between their fighting ability is too great, and she relaxes. Gabby looks up, and three waiters and the maitre d' are standing around them, not quite knowing what to do. It's fine, says Gabby to them all. My sister just got a little upset. She gets up off Catherine and helps the woman stand. They go out of the restaurant with a promise to pay for any damage and retreat to an outside bar area. Catherine is moody but not violent and paces around the lower garden for a minute before sitting down opposite Gabrielle. Look, I'm sorry, says Gabby. Rich didn't say he had a girlfriend. Catherine's eyes are half full of anger and half full of regret. She grunts assent to the words from the other woman. They order drinks, then sit in silence for several minutes. Gabrielle watches the white yachts glide across the silver and gold water of the Côte d'Azur. She thinks about the one night with Rich, and how it hadn't meant anything. It was just sex. Gabby wonders if that is the only kind of relationship that works for someone doing her job. She's not envious of spies who are happily married, and mostly she never thinks about relationships. Too many ties. Too many consequences. Even one night with a man has caused her consequences, and it's not part of her life that she ever seems to get better at handling. Catherine clears her throat, and Gabby turns. Let's forget it, says Kate. He isn't worth it. The red, yellow and green lanterns in the bar sway in a gentle breeze that comes off the sea. Larry is wearing a blue jacket and jeans, brown loafers with no socks, and his Rolex. He is on his third beer, which is quicker than he would normally have downed alcohol, but he can feel a slight knot in his stomach. His large hands hold the glass captive, and his forefinger taps out a Morse message. He can feel his heart beating a little too quickly underneath the linen on his chest. Even his heart's usual cocaine-enhanced rhythm is higher tonight. He knows why, exactly why, he is feeling hyper. The text from Sasha had been short and to the point. Meet me tonight in San Andreas, on the waterfront. I want to get to know you better. Don't tell Seb. His heart had started its incessant drumming from that point onwards. He was driven to Varna in Bulgaria after the hijack and caught a flight back to Nice with a three-hour layover in Vienna during which time the message from Sasha had pinged into his mobile. He knows when Sasha enters the bar without seeing the moment directly himself as she brings a ripple of energy that sweeps through the people at the tables. Her large eyes and long dark hair grab their attention and wrestle it to the ground, 
leaving all comers in her wake. She is wearing a short green dress, Chanel butterfly sunglasses, and white designer trainers. The teenage boy inside Larry, despite all the women he has been with, cannot quite believe she is walking towards him. Sasha sinks gazelle-like into the deeply padded seat next to him and shares a sweet, almost innocent smile. Drink? he says. Ah, Lorda, she purrs from behind her sunglasses and raises a long, slim arm. The waiter is beside them almost instantly. Black Russian, please. Sir? The waiter turns. Me too, the same, yeah, he says, and the waiter returns to the bar. Lovely to see you, Larry. And you, Sash. How are you? Good, you know, got these Jimmy Chews today. She elongates one of her legs and pulls her short skirt up to show even more thigh. You like em? Yeah. No other words are in his head for that second. What have you been up to, then? She says, moving her bottom towards him on the seat. You know, business. Tell me, it's exciting. She moves to rest her hand on his leg. That's some molly coming in tomorrow by road. I was sorting that out today. You want some when it arrives? On the house? She nods enthusiastically. Do I have to do anything to get it? She takes off her sunglasses, and the glitter on her eyelids catches the lights. Her wide mouth soothes into a broad smile, showing her perfect teeth. Well, I I don't know, he says. I'm sure we can think of something. They laugh. The waiter brings their drinks and they flirt all the way down from the first sip to the last drop. Larry can feel his need for cocaine and he tells her to order more drinks while he goes to the bathroom. When he returns, new drinks are already there on the table and Sasha is looking at her phone but she puts it away as he approaches. Cheers, she says. They raise their glasses and both drink. She puts her hand further up on his leg, and he can't help laughing. What about Ulrich? He says, the words getting slightly stuck in his throat. He's not here, darling, she says. Why the sudden (coughs) change of heart? I like a bit of variety. I always thought you looked interesting. He feels hot and pulls at his shirt collar. I thought one day I'd get to know you before it's too late. Aren't I, aren't I the lucky boy? He coughs twice. His chest pulls across between his lungs as though they're being hugged by a bear. His hand rises to his mouth that is coughing now every few seconds. Larry? She says. Robinson tries to stand up, but his legs have no power. He falls to the side, half on the chair and half on the ground. Help him, she calls out to anyone. His breath is rasping. Each intake requires all of his strength. He pulls at the table. A man who says he's a doctor comes over and tries to help him. The man says Larry needs to get to a hospital urgently. Larry grips the man's arm, tries to speak, 
His body arches up, his face stops mid-breath, and he collapses onto the floor. The doctor pounds his chest, attempting to restart his heart for five minutes. Then he stops. I'm sorry, he says to Sasha. And she cries. An ambulance crew arrives, then a police car. Sasha is comforted, sobbing the entire way through the ordeal. The police let her go for the night as she is so upset. A black Mercedes pulls up outside the bar and she gets in. Well done, says Ulrich from the darkness beside her. Very convincing. My pleasure, Sebi. <laughs>